welcome everybody uh, to this week's second masterclass by Savoy Zizek, hosted by the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities. As ever, uh, Zizek needs no introduction, so I'll do a stupid one. Um, he's a man with a game, I mean, he's so notorious or famous, he's a man with a game based on him, where people at parties and in bars and so on pretend that they've never heard of him in order to wind up the person from the theory brigade who's talking to them. Um, and also, this year, uh, a film's been released called Daphne, and uh, quoting from one of the reviews of it, it's about a woman wallowing in meaninglessness, joyless encounters with men. Her brain is infused with the works of philosopher Slavoj Žižek to the same extent her liver... Am I mentioned in the movie? <laughs> yes. To the same extent her liver is a sponge full of white wine. So, uh, what does that say about him? So I'm anti-alcoholic. That doesn't work. Uh, so, Zizek is uh, here with us to continue his discussions of transcendental subjectivity, mm -hmm. sexual difference, and brain science. And he will deliver uh, his lecture, and we hope for around 20 minutes or so at discussion. Least debate, yeah, at, if you want. At the end. So, okay. Because, you know, the only other movie was some crazy melodrama in intellectual circles. I forgot the title, it was with Julian Moore or whatever where a guy played by Eaton Hawk doesn't want to go to a conference and then Julian Moore tells him but Zizek, me will be there you can get a signature and uh, my god I, I was tempted to write to the producers that maybe they should do a premiere in New York and I will be there to give a signature <laughs> if they pay me a first class trip and a nice, nice hotel because you know, don't you agree there is, I hate people who say money is not everything and so on I mean you can say this when you have enough money to put it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, isn't it, this is for me always this uh, middle class guilt attitude. If you speak about authentic, if they exist, which I doubt, poor people, well, you know, they love money and they, they are right, you know. And it's the same with consumerism. I think that there is always an ambiguity. Uh, with this critique of consumerism, you know, like I have here some leftist friends who told me, oh, Oxford Street is ruined, or no, no, you know, all those stores and so on, and they tell me, of course, you also get nothing good there. If you want to buy something properly, go at least to southern part of Bond Street and so on, you that's their anti-consumerism and so on. Okay, that's the last introductory question. Let's see if there are true Marxists here in the room. Did any of you already see uh, Blade Runner. Mm, I am among traitors. <laughs> no, but okay, okay. Let's not lose time. Let's do it. As usual, I will begin with some political topics, which will bring us to Klein Bottle and all that stuff and so on. I want to begin with a rather pessimist note. Political. The standard radical leftist reproach to the left in power is that instead of effectively socializing production and imposing or organizing actual democracy, it remains, the left in power, 
within the constraints of standard leftist policies, nationalizing means of production or tolerating capitalism in a social democratic way or imposing an authoritarian dictatorship or playing the game of parliamentary democracy and so on. But I think maybe the time has come to raise the brutal question. Okay, but what should or could they have done? How would the authentic model of socialist democracy have looked in practice? Let me turn to Chavez, of course. Don't forget, he was not only a populist throwing around the oil money. What is largely ignored in international media are the complex and often inconsistent efforts when Chavez was still alive to overcome capitalist economy by experimenting with numerous new forms of the organization of production. Forms which, of course, endeavored to move beyond the alternative of private versus state property, farmers and workers' cooperatives, workers' participation, control and organization of production, different uh, hybrid forms, combining private property and social control, and so on, and so on. Say, factories not used by the owners were often given to workers to run them. There were many hits and runs on this path, but a friend of mine who is a leftist and who just followed this from Venezuela told me that unfortunately, because he did something very evil, I think I even already used this example here some years ago, whenever it was, when Chavez was still alive, big news, you know, with that factory given to workers, he noted it down and then he went there one year later. It was almost always a fiasco. Fiasco was, unfortunately, uh, the rule. Uh, so, uh, uh, although we are dealing here with genuine attempts in which grassroots initiatives interacted with state proposals, we should also note failures, inefficiencies, corruption, and so on and so on. So, the big question for me remains here. When we criticize Chavez for this, or Chavista, how does or how should the reliance on popular self-organization affect running a government? Can we even imagine an authentic communist or radically left power today? Because what we got is either a disaster, Venezuela, a more or less capitulation, Greece, or uh, return to capitalism, China, Vietnam, and so on. And uh, the case of China is especially interesting here, because official attempts at Marxist social theory in China, and now with this slight turn towards harsher politics, Marxism is again in, in China. But it's a very strange Marxism. They are sending me, maybe you know it, a journal called International Critical Thought, something like this. It's in English, the official Chinese social theory uh, journal. They try to paint a picture of today's world, which, to put it simply, basically remains the same as that of the Cold War. The, we still have the worldwide struggle between capitalism and 
socialism. The fiasco of 1990s was just a temporary setback so that today the big opponents are no longer United States and Soviet Union, but United States and China, which remains a socialist country. So, the explosion of capitalism in China is then read as a gigantic case of what in the early Soviet Union they called NEP, New Economic Politics, partial return to capitalism, so that we have in China a new socialism with Chinese characteristics, but still socialism. Communist Party remains in power and tightly controls and directs, regulates market forces. From this standpoint, the economic success of China in the last decades is not interpreted as a proof of the productive potential of capitalism, but as a proof of the superiority of socialism over capitalism. They claim the old struggle goes on and finally today socialism is winning with China and so on. Now, to sustain this view, which also counts Vietnam, Venezuela, Cuba, even Russia as socialist countries, one has to give this new socialism a strong socially conservative twist. And I think this is not the only reason why such a rehabilitation of socialism is totally non-Marxist. It totally ignores the basic Marxist point that capitalism is defined by capitalist relations of production, not the type of state power. I mean, when I was in China, I asked them, why are you still socialist country? They said, they gave me a very primitive answer. Because in capitalist countries, through their representatives, big capital is in power, holds state power. With us, it's still Communist Party, which is in power, and they just strategically use, and so on and so on. But, so again, that's my problem. Back to Venezuela, as in a nice article in New Left Review, Julia Buxton, she put it, the Chavez revolution has transformed social relations in Venezuela and had a huge impact on the continent as a whole, but the tragedy is that it was never properly institutionalized and thus it proved to be unsustainable. Again, I have this question. Okay, to institutionalize it in an authentic way, how? It is all too easy to say that authentic emancipatory politics should remain at a distance from, ah, sorry, at a distance from state. The big problem lurks, that lurks behind is what to do with state. One should deal, I think, with this problem here and now. Like, uh, again, I don't see what happens in Venezuela as an object of cheap criticism. Like, no, they got corrupted, Maduro government, and so on and so on. I'm always asking a much more tough question. But what should or could they have done? I mean, this is what makes me nervous when I hear this standard leftism approach. We should avoid both traps of state socialism, uh, Soviet Union style, end of uh, social democracy, and 
And then the terms all of a sudden become vague, you know, like true people's democracy, uh, abolish the alienation of state, true socialization of production, not just nationalization, because nation is not the same as society, and so on and so on. And I'm tempted to say, okay, okay, but give me one model. Do you have an answer here? Give me one model. Uh, the countries which succeeded relatively, even in Latin America, and I know, I spoke with him, the vice president, uh, Alvaro Garcia Linera, in Bolivia, they basically play a little bit, but not even that, radicalized social democratic game. They are very careful not to disturb the capital too much, and so on and so on. So, you know what I mean? Like, maybe it's time... My argument is not, let's drop the game and just play, play capitalist welfare state. Because the situation is much more tragic, I think. We will have to move beyond capitalism. I precisely think that this is the greatest utopia that, as your gracious uh, Prime Minister said a couple of days ago, Britain for every uh, place, with a place for everyone, you know. And I like this formula because it's basically a fascist formula, you know. <laughs> the fascist promise is society as an organic body, uh, a place for everyone. But why do I like it? You remember how I mentioned two days ago of this, how I took some examples from movies and so on, how the, what is oppressed from content returns in the form. It happened... My source is, because I just found it when I was driving a tube here, uh, uh, abandoned example of Times magazine, and I, I don't know if it's what's true, but they reported on it. You know when did Theresa May lose her voice? A little bit after, she proclaimed that she wants to be the voice of the voiceless. <laughs> it's wonderful, like, fuck you, you are not even that, you lose the voice. It was a nice example of that up there, you know how the lie in her content returned, returned, uh, returned in the form. So, again, this deadlock of... This is, I think, the deepest reason of the moralization of the left. Because... I don't see, and now the situation is even more sad. Uh, did you notice how this paradox of our predicament, while resistances against global capitalism uh, fail again and again to undermine the advance of capitalism, because they at the same time remain strangely out of touch with many trends which clearly signal capitalism's progressive disintegration. It's for me so strange, and this is a really sad thing, that on the one hand we have all these protesters who are, in spite of different phrases, blah blah, basically playing this conservative game of keep the old uh, results, welfare state, and so on and so on, trade union rights. On the other hand, I mean, I find them disgusting, don't misunderstand me, but the only people who talk openly about capitalism is coming to its end are these new digital whatever post-capitalist capitalist starts like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and so on. They are doing something that we Marxists should be doing. 
They are, <coughs> they are, of course it's a fake and so on, but nonetheless, they are really looking in the present trend in production for the traces, elements of something which can no longer be controlled, regulated within a market mechanism. Isn't this a sad paradox? That is it as if these top capitalists are in a fake way, don't misunderstand me. I don't think, I think, I heard this rumor that maybe Mark Zuckerberg will try to be, uh, to be a candidate for US presidency. Well, I return to my old dogma, I would almost prefer Trump, not quite, <laughs> but uh, to that guy. I mean, Zuckerberg is, you know, the usual hypocrite. You remember news in our media half a year ago, how he wanted to buy a whole island and and, uh, and uh, evict all the natives. It's the usual story. But isn't something very sad in this? That uh, here, where we wouldn't expect them, we find people who seriously think, although in a fake way, think about limits of capitalism. They are. And you find this surprises. That's why I'm not for them. That's why the guy who, did you really mention this two days ago, who, I'm proud to say, he said that I'm his favorite Marxist. You know who? Steve Bannon said this. So I'm a good company. But nonetheless, I said, okay, let's see who this guy is. You know, the one who was now evicted from the White House. And again, he's an intelligent populist in the sense that it's very sad to observe how sometimes and as part of his right-wing strategy, he almost sounds like Bernie Sanders. For example, he opposes the state saving with injections of money, banks and big companies. But you know what's his argument? That this is socialism for the rich. And that no, we need better life for the poor, not, and so on. That's the danger. So again, my point is don't just laugh at Trump. This is for me the saddest thing, this infinite parodies, making fun of Trump, and so on, and so on. This just renders visible, you don't have a true answer. So, uh, uh, let's go on. Uh, where do we find this internal limit of capitalism? Uh, in, uh, in another unexpected thing that is happening, a young researcher who studies there with, uh, with uh, Balibar here, Rebecca Carson wrote, you can get it in, it will appear in some journal, a very important text uh, on uh, the renewed role of uh, violence, slavery, what Marx called direct domination. You see, this is our the tragedy of our situation. On the one hand, capitalism is getting more and more virtual. Virtual in the sense that, you know, uh, uh, relations are non-transparent, financial speculations, and so on and so on. It's more and more abstract. And one would have thought, again, it's pure Mebius strip, because one would have thought that this means that more and more we will be formally free and domination will be more and more impenetrable. No, what is happening more and more is the exact opposite. We are getting at all different levels uh, a mega return of direct relations of domination. 
in what uh, uh, new hierarchies for, uh, for uh, okay sorry sorry that I don't get lost uh, 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 I one result is and here we should also my god I, it's strange you should link to me which, which persons am I mentioning today there is one lesson of I will burn in hell for mentioning her <laughs> from Ayn Rand you know the great American <laughs> philosopher who nonetheless made a point it's the most disgusting ideological thing, unreadable even to me. The final 150 pages of Atlas Shrugged, when uh, that guy, the new prophet, comes and delivers a mega speech more boring than all uh, Mao's and Fidel Castro's and Stalin's together, <laughs> praising capitalism, but she makes one point. The point is that if you abolish the role of money, that as Marx was well aware of this, whatever we have against money, it at least opens the space to some kind of formal freedom. In money relations, you work for me, of course it's de facto servitude, or I work for you, but let's say, I don't, this is the only way for me to survive and so on, but at least the form of freedom is retained. The problem is that if you abolish money or the key role of money without properly exiting capitalist relations and so on, what has to return are direct relations of domination, which unfortunately happened exactly in Stalinism and so on, although incidentally, don't have any illusions there. Stalin didn't have any problem with social differences. You know that? Read Good History of Soviet Union. You will learn that in mid-30s, the wage difference in a company between ordinary worker and uh, top manager was like one to three hundred, up to four hundred times more. But nonetheless, uh, what I am saying is that today, when... Uh, uh, the whole, what happens today uh, is something, uh, uh, is something for me at least uh, extremely interesting, is that, and some intelligent Marxist even got it, that more and more people are paid, not in a proper exchange uh, selling their labor force for uh, 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 to capital to to enable the reproduction of capital, but money serves in a way more and more as a direct, as literally a direct means of social power, a way to exert this power and to uh, control this. Uh, and to control it. For example, you know how many of us are dependent on, in many at least developed countries, to uh, cultural uh, culture, to, uh, to contributions for big companies, or where state is more generous, and so on, uh, jobless people, many of contracts with state, and so on. We should be very careful here. It's no longer market. It's not even done in market criteria. So, de facto, money doesn't even, 
allow you for that minimum of personal freedom, but is more and more functioning as simply a much more direct means of uh, domination. So this would be, again, another nice example of this maybe you strip reversal of how the official story of capitalism, the official party line is we begin in dark medieval times and then we progress more and more freedoms and even many Marxists up to a point by this story claiming yes, it's still false freedom but nonetheless at least, you know, like you can criticize precarious workers but at least formally you are free to choose uh, if you get it, haha, a new job every year and so on. I claim, no, for structural reasons. At a certain point, although money remains, here we get new relations of, at all different levels of slavery, direct, direct interpersonal uh, domination. Not only, and this was from the beginning, Robin Blackburn, uh, uh, wrote some 20 years ago, I think, a big book on it, how at the end of medieval times, more or less, not quite, slavery was marginalized and then with capitalism, it was a new explosion of slavery. And what is so interesting to read, I read this in books on Haiti and so on that, you cannot say, but it was basically big industry, efficient, and slavery was only in those Caribbean islands. Or, no! Slavery was precisely where the most advanced industry was developed uh, at that point. Uh, so, my last point of this maybe strip political would be another one. I, I like religious fundamentalist bullshit. I told you and I warned you the last time that you have the right to put signs in this anti-Semitic way, but instead of Jew put my name, like, you know, to this building and SOAS uh, entrance prohibited to dogs and to Zizek or whatever. <laughs> After you hear this, I'm just reading, uh, I told you this, no, the new Dan Brown origin, no? <laughs> but, but in a way, one topic of these religious thrillers that I like is and I wonder, I will make now a very vulgar Marxist point, hardline reductionist, but I think it's true. What intrigued me, I don't think I already mentioned this here, is uh, the popularity of the topic of left behind. And you don't only get total shit, like Tim Lachai and those those totally crazy American conservatives. They wrote a big, tens of millions old bestseller series of books where the topic is that 10% of the population of Earth disappears. It's, of course, divine rapture because uh, it's, we are approaching Armageddon and God wanted to redeem to uh, uh, keep them out of suffering, all who were faithful to him. You also get much more interesting versions, like, what is the TV series? It's remainders or leftovers? No, no, wait a minute, this one is not a bad series, it's very seriously done. It's just that a couple of millions disappear and the trauma of others, but an, a vulgar idea came to me. Uh, why the popularity of this topic? I hear, I propose a very vulgar, simple Protestant reading, as we all know, the voice of capital is the voice of God, and so on and so on, that maybe God 
as is so often the case, got himself listened to the voice of capital. Isn't exactly the same happening vaguely in our economy? Like 20% are really needed and more and more of us are left behind. <laughs> We are leftovers. This is absolutely our, our position. And I think we should follow this logic to the end. Uh, I remember, maybe you know this, I mentioned it time ago, here I am in a friendly way opposed to Tony Negri, who is always obsessed. She has this primordial, I would say, bourgeois fear of communism or progressive politics today should remain in touch, she is ultra-accelerationist, how do you call it, with the top capitalist development. Once he went even so far as to say that, that uh, that the, these speculations with futures double, all those speculators are much closer to communism than jobless workers, precarious workers, and so on and so on. I don't believe in this. I believe that we should not be afraid to see for hope that in every authentic historical dialectics, The big reversal always happens like this, that what seems to be left behind, out of use, all of a sudden becomes the true side of progress. That's the key. Uh, uh, it's not, and uh, I think we should look for the same things here. Even, and this is the topic, some of you maybe know it, which accounts for so many troubles that I get into refugees. Another problem that I have with refugees, all my sympathy with them and so on and so on, and I'm very much a pessimist here, you know. And I think that, again, that's the reason I didn't accept this leftist mantra. Look, the situation came with my good friend Udi Aloni, the pro-Palestinian Jewish movie maker. He is now in Germany because... And he gave me, he is my friend, so cynical, beautiful. He told me, you know, Germany still has money to finance cinemas. And if you are a Jew and say Holocaust, Holocaust, you cannot get refused money. So Berlin is my place today, you know. And I like him because he is the image of politically incorrect Jew and gets into so many troubles. Here you can see how we no longer live in proper ironic times. I was with him in Dortmund, or one of the German towns. He was staging an, uh, 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 some theatrical piece. And I was there, and he was mad at his collaborators there. He said, but look how clumsy you are, because some costumes should have been done. He said, if you were so efficient like this, You wouldn't have been able to do the Holocaust properly, you know. And they were so embarrassed. They were especially embarrassed by the fact that he, as a Jew, said this, you know. You cannot talk like this today. I mean, it's horrible, whatever. Okay, let's go on. So, uh, uh, what I wanted to say is that uh, uh, with refugees, even he, and I shouted at him, stopped him, wanted to do a, a movie in near future taking place in 10 years from now in Berlin, where all refugees are isolated, like in new concentration camps. They have, uh, they have how do you call this, as in old ghettos, uh, where you have hours when you are allowed to leave it and so on. And I told him, 
are you aware what you are doing? Okay, Germany, Nazi Europe, but the only country which behaved in a half decent way. This is so typically leftist. You attack them for not being radical enough. And what about all the others, especially my city part, Slovenia, Croatia, this is the new axis of evil, I'm telling you. <laughs> Slovenia, Croatia, Hungary, Czech Republic, Poland, Baltic countries, no? Yeah, it's okay, but you focus all the, all the energy on them. So, uh, again, uh, concerning refugees, are we aware? How people don't talk more about this? Are we aware, and I'm not bluffing, I read some statistical, not theory analysis that there is already a kind of a, even class selection, especially from Syria, from others. Those who arrive to Europe, they are already the dynamic, usually more educated, financially stronger part. What about those, I'm back to my topic, left behind? I mean, that's what I wonder. Okay, half, half of Syria moved out. What about those who didn't move out? There we have to solve uh, the problem. So again, that's my problem with this celebration of, but you is a little bit into it, of refugees as nomadic proletarians and so on and so on. They are potentially nomadic proletarians, but they are simply... Refugees in search of becoming proper proletarians. That's their, that's their desire. I mean, we should again focus on the leftovers. Where are billions of dollars to do that? And I'm not a utopian here. Again, Angela Merkel, I have no illusions about her, but she made a wonderful proposal. I already mentioned it here one year ago, which was totally ignored. Why don't we simply give 10% of the entire European Union budget to, to not only refugees to help them, but to solve the problem, invest there, and so on and so on. Oh, all the humanists, everybody passed in silence over it, because you know, when people say we should open our hearts to refugees, I say no, open your wallet, wallets to refugees, <laughs> you know. Every liberal is ready to, to open your heart to it. So what I'm saying is that uh, we should do, these are our left behind today. According to some statistics, in the long term, at least, with robotization and so on, 80% of the people will be, in some sense, left behind within the scope, within the coordinates of the system. Okay, we can play humanitarian games, but properly, there is no place for them. And I think we should not do what... I mentioned this already years ago, even here once. It was one of the most depressing experiences that I had. Tony Negri, he did some TV show in Italian, I think. But since at that time he was living in Venice, uh, he walked with a cameraman in some factory to be soon closed in Venezia Mestre, you know, the city of land with more industrial base of Venice. And some workers were demonstrating there because their factory will be closed. And I was shocked. He said, look at them. They are already dead. They don't know it, but they are already dead, and so on. 
Yeah, but that's why they should be our, our base, I think. We should absolutely drop this primitive, progressive logic of obsession with those who are on the top, and so on and so on. Those left behind should be our, should be our obsession even. That's why, for example, I bought now, you know, I like those, not secondhand, but like drug books, those bookstores which sell old stock, you know. And I'm an anal character, I especially like it when they say, you know, everything must disappear, uh, <laughs> um, uh, closing down and so on. I especially like such sales in France because there, you may have noticed the the way they put it in French for everything must disappear is liquidation total. You know, it erases <laughs> all my Stalinist. But now, on the way here, there is one on Southampton Road. I, it's a wonderful book. For £1.99, I bought it. <laughs> the Timbuktu School for Nomads. You know that mysterious, totally left behind area south of Algiers? East of Morocco, Timbuktu and so on, the very heart of desert Africa there. It's a whole life, nomadic, millions there, okay, they are terrorized by, they have drugs, they are terrorized by Al-Qaeda and so on, but that life there, it's the only serious nomadic society today. How they live and so on, and I have this dream, which always tempted Marxists, even Marx in his last years, when he became friend with Vera Zasulich and some Russian populists, had this dream that Maybe social progress will allow us to return to those few so-called pre-modern primitive forms and somehow find in them the base for immediately joining the most progressive form. So I will believe in, and it's already almost happening then. I think this is how you should imagine digital capitalism. There, no much on their stupid camels and so on. They can very nicely walk around with a simple iPhone or whatever, you know, get in contact and so on. Again, it did strike me how their form of life, how modern it sounds in a way. This should be our orientation. Look at those left behind and find in them new potentials. I mean, this is usually, I think, the form of historical progress. Again, that what appears to be left, what appears a desperate remainder of the past can have a new potential. Uh, so, uh, now, uh, let's go on. Uh, Okay, but this is all this simple logic of Mebius' uh, strip of just, you follow one line, it's a reversal, and so on. Now, I would like to do what I promised you to do at the end, we get to subjectivity and so on. Since, uh, just one improvisation, since I will not have time for it, I maybe already even used it here a year ago, but I would like to repeat it, because in between I had some debates with some people who claim that they understand brain sciences and so on and so on. And I want to repeat to you this story because, you know, we are involved in these games of what challenge brain sciences are. If they will be able to somehow discern processes in our own brain, control us, is this the end of freedom or not, and so on and so on. And 
One, and I wonder if there is somebody among you here who knows this. Am I wrong or not? From the contacts that I had, I didn't get a good answer of this one. You know, because I was playing, I admit it, this standard game of, but will the computer be able to do this? It, maybe you remember it. Again, I think I'm aware that I probably already used it. It's the, uh, this uh, differentiality. In what sense? Sorry, I will again repeat a story that I even yesterday I repeated at Emmanuel Hall that uh, I'm so ashamed. I used it here, I would say, between five and ten times in this room. You know that Ninochka joke about coffee. Bring me coffee with cream. Sorry, we don't have cream. We only have milk. So I can only bring you coffee without milk, you know. Again, a very Hegelian point, which means that this is what Hegel meant by determinate negation. Although they are physically the same. There are three coffees which are physically the same. Plain coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream. But from a speculative Hegelian point, they are not the same. My point is simply, do we have a digital program which can trace this? Which can trace this totally virtual negative determination? Is do we have a computer program which is ready to discern the difference between coffee without milk and coffee without cream? Although they are totally the same. Because the Freudian unconscious has exactly this status. The whole of psychoanalysis deals with this uh, virtual presences. The idea being that if I use this parallel in an extra vulgarized way, uh, uh, like it's like in uh, uh, quantum physics where when something happens to understand it, you have to include in an analysis the wave function. Is it as if all the possibilities, what might have happened, are positive part of what effectively happens? Now, I wonder, again, if machines will be able, machines, I don't fear machines, digital programs, the way we have them today, are, are ready to operate at this level, counting for these uh, uh, virtualities that haunt. Like, it is this because it's not that, although it's physically the same thing. Again, can a machine... Uh, do this. I have doubts. Maybe I'm wrong. I didn't yet uh, get a good answer. But let's go on. So all this is the simple Mebius strip. Now I want to go to the next step. I will show you the images. Ah, we have here to cross cap. Uh, topologically, cross cap is simply uh, re. You saw through those obscene, strange, moving images two days ago, how uh, uh, it's a redoubled uh, Mebius strip, two Mebius strips connected in this way. Uh, uh, what, uh, what is, for me, so productive as a formal metaphor in uh, cross-cap is that you get, in a way, the logic of antagonism at its purest. Two Mebius strips are interconnected, and this interconnection is precisely not a clear 
difference. It's, you know, the, the medial strip is in itself illimited. It doesn't have an external limit. You can circulate endlessly. But if you connect the two, you get a cut. But it's not a cut in the sense of a clear difference. Up to here it's one, then other side. No, it's a cut which precisely cannot be located. How does this function? Let me give you two examples. One, rather bad, don't even, I often provoke you, incite you to do illegal activity, uh, Pirate Bay. No, but, uh, and you know that some people in, in Sweden, Pirate Bay is there. When I was there, they really, they have a pirate party, they wanted to invite me to support their candidate because they heard, okay, whatever. Uh, there is, uh, I don't advise you to download this movie, it's not enough, but the idea is nice, to give an idea of this. Uh, maybe some of you saw it, uh, It Follows, that's the title of a movie, It Follows. From 2014, a supernatural horror, uh, it tells the story of Jay, a girl, Detroit college student girl, who is pursued by a supernatural entity after every sexual encounter. At the beginning of the movie, when she, Jay, goes to a movie theater with her new boyfriend, Hugh, she points out a girl whom Jay says she cannot see her. And later, after the two, Jay and Hugh, make love, she explains to her that she will be pursued by an entity that only she can see now, which can take the appearance of any person. Although it only moves at a walking pace, this entity will always know where she is and will be constantly approaching her. And if it catches her, Jay, it will kill her and pursue the previous person uh, to have it passed on, Hugh. So uh, the story goes on and so on, but so the, the idea is this one. If you are among the damned, every time you make love to somebody and you are prosecuted, persecuted by this it, this it, you, it's a wonderful, nasty dream, this it, you transmit it onto the other person. So the only way to get rid of it is quickly to sleep with another person and so on and so on. Uh, uh. So what is the usual reading of it? The story is more complex, but let's not lose time. Uh, the usual reading, and I like the ambiguity of the title, it follows, means it, the monster, follows you, but it's also this, from what I've said, it follows, and so on. It's quite a nice title. Uh, typically, the usual way this movie was read was a kind of a paranoia construction which echoes our sexual fears, AIDS, promiscuity, and so on, and so on. But I claim, I propose a little bit more refined reading, that it's rather the other way around. What if our sexual relation is uh, never, never functions as a simple duality and so on? There is something wrong there always. And it's the other way around. It's that it gives body to even, I claim it's even the same with AIDS or other fears. 
when one hundred years ago syphilis and so on, venereal diseases. They are so fascinating, I claim, not simply because they are physically, medically really dangerous, but they in a way give body to some deeper personal guilt, fear or whatever. So I claim again, here you can understand in what sense Lacan turns around the term sublimation. In usual way, sublimation means you take some vulgar drive, fear, and you sublimate it. But no, the logic should be the opposite one, as Lacan points out. The true sublimation is, can be, for example, a venereal disease itself, when you have some more fundamental anxiety, which is then sublimated into embodied in this, embodied in this uh, fear. So again, the fundamental lesson of it, it follows the movie, it's a very nice one, is that one and one is never two. There is always some excess, which can be it, which can be uh, some supplement in sexual relationship, it can be the a threat of another partner, it can be simply another's gaze. I think I already mentioned to you the last time I was here, but it's such a dirty story that I cannot resist to uh, repeat it. You know, if you look at the most vulgar, and I don't, I was just told about it, hardcore <laughs> pornography, how I was looking for a paradigmatic scene in it, and I think I found it. It's, well, I'm ashamed to draw it, but the position is this one. Woman is lying on her back with, of course, legs spread out high, and the guy is screwing her, but they must put such a lot of effort into it. Because from the position of the camera, it's absolutely crucial that, like, you see, you see the legs, you see here penetration, but between her legs, always, that's crucial, in the background, you see her face looking into the camera, breaking all the rules of, you know, in a proper uh, fiction movie, you should never look into the camera. And this tells us a lot. I don't uh, justify pornography. I'm against pornography, prostitution, and so on. I'm just saying that the standard feminist doxa, according to which in pornography, woman is objectified. It's not true, and this doesn't make it any better. You can be subject subjectified in a way which is much more humiliating than being objectified. Because, so you see it, the thing itself, blah, blah, the stupid action, but uh, if you see just that, it would become a medical case, you know, and it wouldn't be attractive. You have to see at the same time her face, uh, I will not go into those gestures, but you know, for this you should raise my salary if you want to in include into performance this. You know that fascinating, so you see how even here, what this gaze, looking at whom, at the viewer, this means that I, as a spectator, am the pure a object A, it's me, it's one and one, the guy screwing the girl, lady, and me, my gaze. Without that, it doesn't function. So if anything, I made this point often here, the one who is truly objectified is the guy. You know, usually in most of the hardcore movies that my friends picked up for me with this case, you don't even see the guy's face. 
Nobody cares about that. Usually he approaches from behind and just, you know. You, because, of course, he does his duty because you see ejaculation, no? So, okay, that's enough. We don't want your stupid face and so on. So, uh, but what I'm saying is that this is a very simple example of one plus one is not simply two, but it's plus small a. Something is added to it. Uh, so, uh, 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 with uh, such more complicated space, I would like now to explain it more in detail, uh, this uh, 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 cross cap. Maybe the best way to illustrate it would be through this old, and here you will see why cross cap is double, redoubled uh, uh, quilting point one the capiton or redoubled uh, uh, redoubled Mebius strip. Uh, I will try to be as short as possible here because that is running uh, the notion of future. You know, the old classic Lacanian notion and so on. It's a very interesting notion. Why? Because we have and it's crucial even for Marxist theory, this I claim. Be, uh, the, we have the usual predominant notion of future which made history especially, it's a wonderful concept. I described it in one of my, I don't know which chapter in which of my books, but the point is that uh, this notion made history, it's a wonderful example how first, uh, uh, Lacan uses it not only one time that I thought, he uses it two times, two, three times before, but not as a term, more just as a verb, futures and so on. Then, Jacqueline Miller, when he was very young, 21, 22, he wrote that famous short text, cultural elements of the logic of the signifier, whatever, but still it was marginal. Then, some French cinema theorists took it over, to um, uh, account for how montage, cutting, subjective, objective point of view, at this exchange works in cinema, and then screen in the UK. No, it made history out of it. But as far as I was able to see, the standard use of suture, this notion, uh, the stan its standard use was more the simple use of this one. The idea is part of theory of ideology. We have, it was supposed to be a materialist theory, we have a site of production where things are really produced. And this site of production is mirrored in ideological representation. And by suture they mean that precisely because every field of representation even in the most primitive, let's, let's call representation, legal representation, ideological representation, cannot ever fully recapture its site of production. It's the ideological illusion that it can do it fully. Like the classical example of early Marx would have been you have real life actual production and it's always in excess of the idealist, ideological or philosophical circle. So you need future, you need an element within the circle of ideology which enables it to find some kind of a false closure. So uh, 
in the same way that, you know, Michel Foucault, I mentioned it a hundred times, that from uh, the, the end of the introduction to his Le Moelle shows, the English title is The Order of Things, and the English title is correct. I read somewhere that Foucault first wanted the title L'Ordre de Choses, or what? But uh, the, the publisher put pressure, and then it's again did go in the English translation, the, the repressed return. So, uh, you remember, he lists that famous ironic from Borges classification of all dogs, where you have dogs who belong the emperor, uh, fake Chinese, it's a joke. Dogs who are brown, dogs who belong to the emperor, dogs who this, that, and at the end, of course, all dogs who are not included into this list as one of them. So the idea is to, to get a complete circle at the level of representation, you need an element which literally sutures the field. It really stands for what is not included into the field, but it, that's the illusion of suture, it presents it as simply one among the elements of the field. I don't want to repeat another example, maybe I even did it two times ago, which I think if you count all my years in London, I, it's modest, I used it only some 40, 50 times, I would say. You must remember this. My point is that in Marx's classification of modes and of production, the so-called Asiatic mode of production is the suturing element, I think. In what sense? You can clearly see how the original categorization is simply primitive societies, uh, uh, ancient slave societies, medieval societies, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever shit will be afterwards, communism or whatever. But then Marx noticed that there are quite some societies, ancient China, ancient Latin America, Egypt, which do not fit any of this. And he proposed the category Asiatic mode of production, and uh, it's clear that it functions as a suturing element. It pretends to be just one category. But it really stands as a like waste basket into which you throw everything that doesn't fit, not just any of the other categories, but everything that simply doesn't fit the very principle, how you would it, of Marxist notion of the uh, of the uh, of the modes of production. So again, this is the standard notion of future. You have some positive field of productivity, actual life, whatever. You have its ideological representation. And then for the field of representation, again, to retain its consistency, you have to suture it precisely to close, uh, to close the field. But here things get... Uh, complicated. Because uh, if you read clearly Lacan, especially if you combine Lacan with German idealism and so on and so on, that's the lesson of Kantian transcendentalism, is that this future, which means the internal space of representation, needs a suturing element from the outside to be sutured, to act as a whole, so there is no inside without in within this insight an element which stands for what is excluded from it from the outside uh, the uh, the beauty of theory 
would be to proclaim that there is also the opposite inside, that also outside, not actual outside, but outside the way we relate to it, is only constituted if we add to it an element which is from our own subjectivity inside. So it's not only, let's to simplify it to the utmost, let's say inside, outside is our subjective representations versus objective reality. It's not only that our subjective representations can only appear as our full subjective universe with some element which is a standing for, uh, for the outside. It's also the opposite. To, in order to relate to something as external objective reality, you have to add to it a subjective element. Something which is really a stand-in out there for subjective positions. Two days ago, I gave you the example, I don't want to repeat it, just to remind you of that Stalinist attempt at classification of kulaks and so on, where they try, they, you have this mysterious notion of sub-kulak, which appears to be one of the objective social groups, but it's really a stand-in for certain subjective attitude. But I would like to take here another example, even from high theory, philosophy. This is the beauty, I don't have time to go into it in detail, just to bring you some associations. This is what Kant is saying. We get, when we are affected by outside phenomena, um, things, we, our experience is this confused, not even reality. How do we arrive at objective reality? It's all the confusion of our sensual affects and so on, how do we get from here to, no, it's not just a confusion of impression, I see objective reality out there, through subjective synthesis. That's the beauty of Kant. You add something, you have to add something to your psychic impressions to get at reality, but it's not you have to add something objective. You have to add something precisely subjective, your subjective gesture itself. It's the same paradox, although I'm opposed to this simplistic confusion between uh, quantum physics and Kantian transcendentalism. But nonetheless, you know, <coughs> in quantum physics, I mentioned it a little bit, but now I want to make a different point. Two days ago, we have all this quantum wave function, blah, blah, blah. How do we get from there to this, what we perceive as hard external reality? Through measurement, through subjective registration. This is a nice example of this second notion of future, where it's not that uh, subjectivity has to be supplemented by a trace of an object, but no, objectivity itself has to be supplemented by a master signifier, object A, whatever, to make out of this confused objectivity the harsh objective reality. And here, I already mentioned it two days ago, I think, uh, here we can get uh, another example from uh, 
from uh, uh, popular literature, Stephen King, The Dark Tower. There was a movie now, again, please, don't even bother to download the movie. It's not good enough. But I like the central idea, which is precisely cross-cap, this double future. The idea is that there is a dark tower, which is at the same time what holds our reality, our developed world, uh, uh, this, this in our reality, part of the story takes place in contemporary, I think it's New York or Chicago, doesn't matter, a modern American city. And then, if you pass through it into another reality, it's very interesting what is this other reality, the true one. It's something like magic Wild West. It's really as if, he is very Marxist here, it's as if our reality cannot stand alone, it has to be sustained by a much more barbaric other world. And again, the whole point is that some evil forces want to destroy this tower, and in this case, both worlds would disintegrate. And then you have the, it's usually, uh, it's nice who the actors are, keeping in line with this politically correct fact, where the, this is why I liked American Gangster wrote a movie with Denzel Washington where the big guy was a black American gangster. My God, that's for me true anti-racism. Aren't you sick and tired of this political correctness where black guys should always be some kind of a saint or the good guys? No, I want bad black guys. That's fighting racism. No. So here it's Idris Elba, of course, who is the good gunfighter, and it's the how do you pronounce the name? Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, who is the, the bad guy? You know. But again, I like this idea that it's not just the primitive materialist reading would have been our reality, our splendid uh, megalopolis life. It's just an ideological illusion. The real life is bar our barbaric reality. No, the structure is redoubled. You need in our world, a representative of the outside, that outside also needs a representative of our inside. They are, in this sense, they are, uh, they are doubly future. Sorry, let's go on. Uh, so, uh, 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 let's move uh, on even more. Yes, uh, now things will become more interesting. Because here we can go on. What you see here would be the tower, no? And you have one circle of reality and the other. You remember how this is formed. The two are twisted, and you cannot put them together. You need a dark tower keeping them together. You destroy the dark tower, everything unravels. <laughs> but even this is not enough to do subjectivity. For subjectivity, you need Klein bottle. Now, I will try to go a little bit on, just to give you an idea. I will keep my promise. I will send the text and so on, where this is for my, from my forthcoming book and so on. Uh, 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 I think philosophically here things become even more interesting, for me at least. Because to, to be a materialist today is not 
is to reject. I think a true materialist today should return to Plato's cave metaphor. The, what's fashionable today is to claim that, uh, oh, Pla not only Plato's cave, but the Cartesian represent representation notion that we as subjects are caught in our circle, but that reality is out, and then you have this typical modern problem, uh, can we reach out of the circle of our representation to things themselves or not? And the fashionable thing to say, especially this was done among others, in a model way by Heidegger. The point of Heidegger's being in the world, in the Weltsein, is that precisely this kind of a gap opens up a pseudo-problem. Of course, you first posit a gap. How do I know that my ideas, perceptions are not only in my mind? How do I know that they are outside? That first you posit a gap and then you wonder that you cannot step over it. So the, the standard uh, philosophical idea is that it's false to say how can we reach the world. I as a subject, am already engaged in the world. I already am in the world. I constitutively participate, am engaged in the world. That's our uh, original, as it were, original position. Uh, against this predominant idea, I am more tempted to return to, to, uh, to Plato's cave. In what precise sense? I don't think that, of course we shouldn't put it in this standard way, it's all too simple. And Hegel showed this nicely, that the mistake of this skepticism of I am here and out there is reality, but can I ever reach that reality, is it beyond my scope? It's not that it's too skeptic, skeptic. it's that it's not skeptic enough. It presupposes as safely given, well-known, my own reality, as it were. As if that part is sure, and then we play the game, can I reach the outside or not? <laughs> uh, what we should do is this. Of course I am in the world, always engaged among objects and so on. But all of it, the combination of in and out, me and the world, is already a certain circle which is, and precisely people like Francisco Varela showed this nicely because, uh, uh, where is that, uh, uh, Chavista terrorist, he's not today here. <laughs> uh, uh, my God, I have this. Oscar, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he will never get an Oscar for theory. Okay, but that's another one. Uh, you know that uh, Varela developed this nicely how. Take any animal, even at a very vulgar level. We know, for example, how a vision of a, of I don't know which animal, of a fly, is totally different from our vision. So that I am not just me. I'm me together with my environs. And reality is not simply something out of these environments. Reality is simply the interconnection of different totalities, my life world, the other life world, and so on and so on. What I mean by this? Let's make a, a, a step further here. So uh, now you will say, but nonetheless, is this universalized subjectivity? 
subjectivism. No, my point is this one, and that should be a true answer. That, uh, of course, the reality I encounter is always in a certain way subjectivized. Like, I see you certain colors of your dresses. And, of course, only certain colors are visible to me, blah, blah, even at a more practical level, whatever. But I think it's wrong to say, oh, so, all our realities are subjective. Yes, they are, but I myself am not subjective. In the sense that reality that I see is subjectively distorted, precisely because I'm included into reality. You know what I mean? The very idea of objective reality means that I'm somewhere out. But I cannot see directly objective reality precisely because I'm part of it. I'm a partial element of it. I don't have a position outside of it. So the true overcoming of subjectivism is to bring it to the end, to claim everything is subjective, but then to undermine even the consistency of subjectivity itself. That's why my favorite line, I'm sorry if I already used it, but not two days ago, at least a couple of months ago, uh, I think George Orwell was way too simplistic. I have problems with him. But there is one line which I love, one exchange between uh, Winston Smith and who is the Richard Barton doctor O'Brien or who, his interrogator. That's better. Where then, when he is investigated, uh, examined by by the investigator Winston Smith, she asked this half-paternal figure of sadistic investigator, torturer, but tell me, does the big brother really exist? Or is he just our man? And the answer you get in Orwell is a perfect one. He says, no, you are totally wrong. It's not that big brother doesn't exist. You don't exist. You think you exist. You, you know, that's the Hegelian move. Uh, skepticism brought to the end means, e even in a way, even David Hume did this, you know. But do I exist? What am I? Am I a consistent I or whatever? And the paradox is only in this way, by focusing on me, I see how I myself fall into reality. And this is, for me, so, uh, uh, yes, Plato's cave. Of course, I reject all the standard readings of Plato's cave. There are many uh, uh, postmodern uh, versions of it. I like them. One version of Plato's cave is to turn it around and claim that the sun out there is black sun, it's evil. So avoid sun. Let's remain, it's nice in the warm cave. Why to go up there? Uh, a similar thing is done by Sloterdijk who claims, but it's windy up there, it's not nice. Culture is precisely that you built your cave inside, no? Then you have the postmodern version, which I hate most. The postmodern version is, but there is nothing outside cave. There are just endless caves, and the ultimate ideology is precisely that there is reality outside cave, and so on and so on. No, I think that's how... Uh, I will give you a very simple reading. It will be the result. Aha, aha. We have this one. Uh, uh, that's how I read it. Imagine this is 
whatever this would be, the pre-symbolic real, world outside of us. This world as it is in itself, not even world, let's call it, it's even difficult to name it, reality, external, whatever, has to have an abyss, has to be already somehow thwarted, marked by impulse. So, you fall into this uh, uh, hole, and what happens is that this would be something like what, for example, uh, for example, Epicurus and those uh, 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 thinkers, uh, 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 Lucretius called, you know, Marx wrote, uh, maybe we should rehabilitate Marx's very early writings, his doctor thesis, the Klinamen, no? The, otherwise he would just fall down, nothing happens. You have a Klinamen here, you see you progress here, you turn around, and where do you find yourself? On the opposite side the inside. From the outside you are inside and I think that if you look at it here, you are in Plato's cave. This is the screen of, from the inside of what you see in Plato's cave and now you will say, but you see also this, like a kind of a disgusting snout or whatever. <laughs> this is you. This is the impossible. And this is like a, a blind spot. You cannot see this, because this is precisely where you, as a gaze here, are inscribed into reality. So I think the, the proper materialist approach is not, oh, this is just a screen, let's break through there. No, do this. This is the materialist question. Through what twist or turn in reality did I acquire this subjective position to look at it. Now I will give you a couple of other, uh, I think they are at least, uh, nice, uh, uh, nice uh, uh, examples from it. This is why I think, now I go into madness, the most crazy medieval theories were basically right. I cannot reproduce it here, I didn't want too much bothering with this, but remember those wonderful medieval drawings of a finite universe where there is one famous drawing where it's as if it's like a Truman show, you remember. You reach the end of the world, the sky, and you dig a hole in it and you see the true outside. This would be like you come here, no you. And although, again, this is of course uh, uh, astronomically a stupidity. But it's a perfect metaphor for ideology. For ideology. So again, critique of ideology is not just I'm inside here, how to see it outside. No. The materialist theory is this loop. How does reality itself allow for this term? Or another uh, Another that I like, uh, uh, a story that I often used, uh, uh, another uh, example of this, uh, 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 sorry, of this closure. You know this, I used it years ago, I will repeat it. You know my favorite theory of, uh, uh, you know the creationist reply to, to Darwin. My God, that guy was a genius. I forgot his name, an English theologist, friend of Darwin, uh, was deeply disturbed by Darwin's origin of species. Because on the one hand, he saw, my God, 
Darwin is right, correct? Description. At the same time, he was deeply religious. And fuck it, if it says in the Bible that if you count the years that our world should have been created like 4,000 years ago, God cannot be wrong. So you must know what was the solution of this guy. The best theory of ideology that I know. Of course, God, Bible cannot be wrong. God did create the world 4,000 and I don't know how much years ago. But he created directly the fossils, you know. He created false depth to make it look infinite. As a temptation for us and so on and so on. And isn't this absolutely a correct theory of ideology? Isn't every historical epoch like that? For example, the last detail that I learned here, a trivial one, as an old Wagnerian. You know this Viking idea that they have those stupid horns? You know that uh, early stagings of Wagner invented it. There are no ancient Nordic helms with those stupid horns because they would be, from the fighting point, totally meaningless. They are clumsy, you are more vulnerable, and so on. So, you know, like, uh, this is this. These horns were created like fossils. <laughs> I say, they were, and this is how ideology functions. The closure, of, the closure of ideology. So, again, this is our view of reality, which is always ideologically conditioned and so on and so on. But again, the way to break out is not in an idealist way it would be to try to directly adopt a God's view, divine view, like, oh, we should abstract from this and see the way things really are. No, what we should see is this disgusting protuberance. How do we ourselves where are we, the blind spot where we, this is our gaze where we are uh, inscribed into it this, this reversal here, uh, when the subject, you see here yourself as it were as an object but of course it's, elusive, it's literally like uh, uh, a blind spot so uh, uh, okay, maybe I should leave you now some time for a debate. I cheated, of course, but I will give you an explanation directly. First, for this part of Klein Bottle and so on, I promise this evening, not afternoon, because now I have to prepare myself for that Milner stuff, in the evening I will send you, I have it in a rough form, if some of you are interested in it, that Klein Bottle part. Uh, second, as to the title of my talk, no? It was like, you know, I will now repeat a very bad joke, you know, like, you know that stupid joke that I often quote in different versions, you have a painting of Lenin in Warsaw, and on the painting is just Nadezhda Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, being screwed by some young Komsomol guy, no, and uh, visitor asks, but where is Lenin? Say, eh, Lenin's in Warsaw, no, so, <laughs> and I try in the introduction to my book that just appeared by Verso, no? I try in a very utopian way, but maybe it is, claim that we can maybe imagine a similar painting, like, you know, let's imagine Soviet Politburo worrying about early years, when it was still progressive of Solidarnost, how to crash Solidarnost, free trade unions in Poland, and the title is Lenin in Warsaw. 
And then, again, when it's Lenin, where? Lenin is in Warsaw, let's hope. His spirit was more alive there among... So, uh, in the same way, sec, uh, what was the stupid title of my official, no? Oh, Summit Transcendental Subjectivity. Yeah, yeah. So where you find that, you find it in my new book, which <laughs> came out. <laughs> it's kind of a Lenin in Warsaw. No, seriously. I didn't want to follow that line because I discovered too late that I repeated it so often. The line is simply the parallel between... Uh, there are two books out now. Let, allow me, please, to make a little bit of propaganda. The first one is, it's incredibly selling so well already it will be a classic Alenka Supancic, what is sex it exploded already in the United States and here and I, in a very modest way, even I had long negotiations with MIT and asked them to publish my book to make it appear at least a month later I even defined my book as a dialogue with her so uh, uh, in that book in detail you can find that topic, that is to say sexual difference and ontology. I directly approach this paradox, isn't sexual difference something animal or even human, my God, in its specific human being, what has all this to do with ontology? And I try to prove, you know my line, if you know a little bit of my work, how the basic insight of modern transcendental ontology is that of Kant, Antinomies, if you try to think the world as an ontological whole, you get necessarily entangled in antinomies, two types of antinomies, uh, dynamic, mathematical. Next step, and this is the mega discovery of John Kopchak, it's incredible how ignored it is, that uh, the structure of these antinomies fits precisely, even Lacan didn't know it. So I'm not criticizing others not to be Lacanian. I'm just shocked how even Lacanians ignore this. How the structure of Kantian antinomies exactly corresponds Lacan's formulas of sexuation. And then my Hegelian solution that with Kant, antinomies are simply epistemological. The fact that we get caught into antinomies means that we cannot reach reality as it is in itself. My Hegelian solution, but what if reality in itself is antinomic in this way? So again, to apply it to here, the way to reach objective reality is not trying to erase our subjective position, but precisely uh, to locate what appears as our subjective position into a feature of reality itself. It's inconsistency, it's antagonism, and so on and so on. That's, I endlessly repeat it, that's the Hegelian formula. That uh, what appears, uh, as, as Hegel puts it so nicely, his critique of Kant is that Kant was all too tender towards things. Kant thought that when he discovers an antinomy, it must be limited to our mind, that it cannot be a feature of uh, reality itself. I just then try to develop in detail in this book of mine, but what you will find may be more interesting, doing a little bit of propaganda in this book, it has an obscene title, but it's from Beckett, Incontinence of the Void. You know that he said, he said, well, said uh, late Beckett's play, 
a very tragic one, an old senile lady is dying, and then there you have this phrase, incontinent, the void. Uh, uh, then I try to, in second part, will maybe be of more interest to you, because I deal with Marx, surplus pleasure, I presented all this here, and then I try to draw the consequences, how we should renovate Marx and so on, all these polemics against which type of discourse is, uh, uh, is, should be the revolutionary discourse or even the capitalist discourse. And uh, there will be many polemical points there. Uh, one is even apropos Milner. So let me conclude with the point that Milner today, whom we will meet at six, wrote a book about uh, Relier to read again revolution. It's basically, I mean it in a benevolent way, a counter-revolutionary book, but he is intelligent. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, he sees it correctly in that book. I wonder if we will have time to debate this, that you cannot simply say uh, Stalin is a deviation. Stalin did propose a solution to a certain deadlock in Leninism already. But I nonetheless don't agree with his version of that. that because he, I think, wrongly reads Stalinism as violent return of the discourse of the master in all its arbitrariness and so on and so on. I absolutely disagree with him here. I think that it's crucial for Stalinism that it has to appear falsely but nonetheless as a pure university discourse. Stalinism is objective knowledge, laws of history and so on and so on. So let's just hope that it will be at six an interesting debate. So, okay, so now I propose that we play uh, democracy a little bit. Okay. okay, so time actually for questions. So please, we have a roving microphone over here. So please. You really don't want this. No, really. No. <laughs> Sherry Max <Cohen. laughs> Um Indicate who, who's got a question or a comment or a point. Or, I'm sorry, again, if you were still confused, I know I was stealing from my future staff, improvising, but again, hey, a Klein bottle. It's, I just must warn you, it's still a confused draft, because the book will appear maybe over a year from now. I'm still working on it, and as to this title, again, the book is out. And, uh, ah, so that I will be honest, so that you will not let, te let tell me that I'm just making cheap propaganda for myself. I don't know it, maybe you know it, but there are a couple of websites, I think especially a Russian website, where they copy all of them and you instantly get all our theory. So, if you want to know, I'm not even telling you buy the book, I'm telling you download it. <laughs> so, we got... Ah, thank you. Yes. Um, the other day, you, you spoke about how you can boil down like, capitalist class relations in just two classes and all the classes yeah. and proliferations and the difference antagonists of the class. But could you just elaborate a little on what you think this means for the kind of aggressive political agendas like how would you approach aggressive political agendas 
Well, the most obvious reading, but I don't like it because it's too simplistic, I'm self-critical here, would have been to read it as another version of that, uh, uh, of that war of position, Gramsci and so on, so that it's never simply us against them, although ultimately it is us against them, but it's always that we struggle for a certain field. Class struggle means precisely that it's not only us against them, but always some blurred dimension, a third element for which we fight. This would be for basically the elementary lesson that uh, uh, not only different groups of people, but even uh, different fields of struggle. For example, here I may be close to Laclau, feminism. It's not automatic that it's all one big progressive struggle, ecology, feminism, minorities, whatever. You can well have, we can debate if it's consistent, but as a fact, you can well have a racist working class position. And I'm not now talking about Nigel Farage and all those pseudo-worker Marine Le Pen. Let me reach to the highest. I'm talking about Engels. I still like him. I'm not a Slovene nationalist, but all the right-wingers in Slovenia attack like crazy, quote Engels, who said, even in a beautiful rhetorical twist, in some letters, he says that, speaking about Slovenes, Croats, and so on, that these nations, no wonder they are politically reactionary, because their existence itself is a reaction. (laughs) Remember? (laughs) So, he even uses a term which can be, but shouldn't be, it's not, but with evil intention, they sometimes translated it as Holocaust, that European revolution will be a big Holocaust which will swipe away. You know what? What was his trauma, uh, Engels? Uh, 48, where it looked well for Austrian, especially Hungarian revolution, but then us, Croats, Slovenes, with our voluntary military units helped to crush it. And this determined uh, Marx's perception, which is why for Marx and Engels, only Poles, Poland, Poles and Hungarians were the ones who deserved to survive, as it were, who progressed it. All others were considered already in their objective. So uh, what I'm trying to say here is that uh, what I mean is that we cannot simply claim, but this is uh, uh, one-sided, not authentic nationalism. No, there is no teleological necessity for it. In the same way that you have anti-feminist working class movement and so on. So this would have meant it that uh, class struggle means precisely that it's not class difference in this pure way. But it's class struggle, which means undefined space, you have to fight for it, or just just to mention ecology and so on. 
It's clear that you can have five, six versions of ecology, my God. You can get conservative ecology, this kind of a rural ecology. We should return to pre-modernity and so on. You can have capitalist ecology, only market, if we leave it to the market, taxing, uh, the polluters can save us. You can have state ecology, strict state regulation, and so on and so on. So... Uh, the idea would have been that this is an, an open process and that we should reject, leave behind this simplistic pseudo-Marxist, although it was very popular, teleology where it says, but women should see that their only solution is through socialist revolution, I don't know nature lovers should see that the only solution and so on and so on no, the fight is uh, the fight is genuinely open this is the empirical uh, consequence, but what interests me more as a degenerate theorist is this theoretical this paradox that class struggle means precisely that empirical empirically there are never simply two Classes. The same as, although the parallel, of course, is not perfect, sexual difference in its Lacanian version means precisely that you cannot fix it as a field of male, female, and so on. It means that, for example, for me, a transgender person, in a radical sense, not just a guy who wants to be a girl or other way around, but those who call themselves, I don't know, Z or whatever, neither he nor she, all those problems, that they are not beyond difference. They stand for difference or deadlock as such. Even in a sense, I'm ready to claim that here maybe Marx was a little bit too simplistic with his dismissal of lumpen proletariat, as you know, those decadent, always being corrupted by the ruling class, and so on and so on. No, 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 I think that lumpen proletarians are precisely the deadlock. It's the same thing that my... The one whom I admire very much, the anti-Gandhi of Indian independence, Ambedkar, he put it so nicely when he says that, it's a beautiful Hegelian formula, no castes without outcasts. You cannot have a perfect caste system without producing an effect, and as a Hegelian he should have added that precisely those without outcasts are precisely the one who stand for universality. And this is where, as I try to develop in my big fat Hegel book, Less Than Nothing, this is also where Hegel, I think, was not Hegelian enough. When he speaks about rebel, as those without place in social edifice, he should have added that precisely as such, rebel stands for universality as such. Universality is always an authentic position of those with no place. Okay, I didn't answer your question, but I hope I <laughs> made some kind of a direction. Yes. Oh, um, now I'm afraid you are usually ask tough questions. Okay. okay. Um, I will take up your topology points at the end, the sweet doubling of the suture. Yeah. And I want to, I'm thinking of uh, the way Bruno Latour uses the quasi-object of Michel Serre. And also, I'm thinking of the work of the schizoanalyst artist, Alicia Clark, the Brazilian artist, who mm -hmm. does this performance where she cuts the Mobius hand. Mm -hmm. But every time you go around, you cut in a different place mm -hmm. to avoid repetition. Mm -hmm. 
So my question is, I'm thinking as a filmmaker um, about how screen took up this redoubling of the suture and the importance was to cut the suture yes. as a filmmaker and for the spectator. And I'm just wondering how you would break through an act I produce, to produce a change. I think I can. In terms of yeah, I, the only thing because I'm not. I'm. I'm very sorry. I talked too much. Did you finish your I question? I finished. I'm sorry because, as you know, better, maybe better than me, I tend to. It's my standard joke. That's why I will never be an analyst because can you imagine me sitting there for more than ten seconds <laughs> listening to an? Although I would be a nice interpassive analyst. Like my idea is, the patient lays down and then he just send one two words and I say. Fall asleep, I will do the association for you and interpret them. You just have a nice rest there. <laughs> that would be my No, but seriously, uh, so as a woman, at some level, making fun of myself, not of women, you know this male chauvinist prejudice that women cannot think in abstract terms, they need examples. Okay, then obviously I'm a woman. <laughs> I will give one example of how to, what to do precisely at the level of film. I already used this example in my books, and I think it's precisely, at the same time, a nice example of a Mebius strip, but even more of what to do here. <coughs> Two typical, even archetypal, Hitchcock shots. You remember <coughs> in Bodega Bay, the birds, the fire in the city. You have, when uh, um, a stupid guy throws his mattress, doesn't see that gasoline is leaking, and then it explodes fire. The first part of this short scene is shot in the standard suturing, subjective objective. You see, you see, uh, you see Tippi Hedren, Melanie, uh, this ridiculously, looking at it, and you see what she sees, that guy unknowingly killing himself subjective. Then, from this exchange of subjective objective, you get into what Hitchcock calls pure God's view, so-called. You see the whole city from the up, like in this getting, establishing your general view, you see all of it. And then it's the touch of a genius, I claim. Then, all of a sudden, from behind, that's crucial. One bird enters, the other bird enters, and that's the beauty. What appeared as just an objective thought, now we see reality, becomes subjectivized, but in an obscene way. My God, my gaze was not really just an objective view. It was the gaze of a monster. This shift is that, and here, this is, I think, what we look at reality, no? We should see that this look at reality is never objective, precisely when we think that it's an objective view. It's a kind of, what happens here is a kind of a future shift raised to a higher potency even, in the sense that there is no cut. It's the same shot, just with the entrance from behind of the birds, the shot gets subjectivized, but in a terrifying way. So that's what I like it. The terrible thing is not what you see. 
It's not all that bullshit. You tore the curtain, some octopus, gigantic crack and squid is there. No, the horrible element you discover is the position of your gaze itself. You think you have a safe. Oh, I'm just looking at it. Then you see, my God, but I am a monster. My position. And the same, of course, happens in a little bit more primitive but supreme way in Psycho. I always advocated this, you know. Forget about that boring, that uh, murder in, how do you call it, uh, the shower murder. No, no, no. The second, Arbocas detective murder. You have the same, you have the exchange of uh, point of view shot and uh, objective shot when detective Arbogast, Arbogast climbs the stairs. Then the camera moves up, almost like geometrically. You have, again, this so-called God's view shot. And then... We later learn. Norman, the monster, enters, and then a sudden jump to the face of a detective. Just you see the cat being, and here again, you are violently thrown into the point of view of the thing, Norman himself. So, I think this would be how to undermine the future, because at least in the birds, what you get again, it's not a direct cut. But see, it's a, just a radical reversal of the subjective status of a shot. Again, you thought, oh, okay, now I'm at safe distance, let's take a look at it. And then you discover you are the eye of the storm, you are in the very center of it. That's what we should do with our gaze. Not try to see it objectively, but to include into the picture, as it were, the horror, the monstrosity of our own uh, position. That's all I can say in a very feminine way, just a partial view. I really think I'm getting desperate. I think that now I will sound as a neoconservative almost, but uh, today... It's we men who get feminized and, as already repeated it, all the good books on Hegel in the last years were written by women. My God, where are we coming, you know? <laughs> so, thanks very much, but it's very interesting. Unfortunately, the other authors, I'm trying to read uh, Bruno Latour, and of course, in this big conflict among so-called object-oriented guys, between Latour and, and, Ad, and, for example, Harman, I'm absolutely for Latour. Because Harman makes a very stupid metaphysical move where uh, he, in a totally philosophically non-justified way, he projects onto reality a certain naive ontology where he claims we just see superficial aspect of reality but there is an animist depth of the object things in themselves and so on and so on. And but Latour is well aware that this depth is strictly re relational and so on. No, no, I'm here. And also Latour, I quoted him in my political text. He wrote also a wonderful analysis of all this European Union confusion now and so on and so on. Although I don't agree often with him, but let's put it like this. Latour is not a complete idiot. And... You know how I mean this? Like, there are only two types of people, I claim. Complete idiots and those who are not complete idiots. There is no third position, you know. <laughs> like, for me to really praise a guy is to say, not only you are a genius, you wrote a wonderful book, but you are even not a complete idiot, you know. That's the highest. So, and do you agree, this is the difficult thing to do today. 
to find this kind of thinkers, authors, who, although you may not agree with them, but they, but, but they raise the right questions, they are worth reading, I mean. And the saddest thing for me is that quite often these guys worth reading are not Lacanians. <laughs> Lacanians can also be boring, predictable, and so on and so on. So thanks for, we can do one more. Yeah, well, have we got enough uh, here? A very boring, uh, predictable question. What do you mean by no animist death? By no? Animist death. You, you said, you, you talked about no animist death. Ah, uh, no, 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 what I simply... It seemed like a deliberate manipulation of the other. No, no, no. Uh, wait a minute. I'm not manipulating Graham Harman. I, otherwise, I, we are kind of almost friends. Good, but he, his thesis is explicitly, even pathetically, that thing, objects have their own depth, which is independent of how they relate to other things. And he even talks, for example, in his book on, on, on that quadruple or whatever, he even potentially, although in an ambiguous way, endorses some kind of animism, in the sense that there is a depth in objects. While my position here is, maybe I'm wrong, I'm just drawing the line, is first, uh, one of his Harman's arguments is that things have a much larger scope of potentialities and in their actual relation just some of the potentials are actualized you know like I don't know you for example usually primitive not his my more primitive example you use a hammer for nails or whatever but you can also use it to to crack the skull of your uh, of your mother-in-law or whatever, and so <laughs> more productive. But but uh, it has all these potentials, and just some of them are actualized. You know, I think that I wouldn't put this as an in itself. Why not externalize these potentials? Isn't it that often the same object? acquires new potentials when it's displaced into another context, and so on and so on. And this is basically Latour's logic more. That, so I don't see why, because also, in a way I appreciate this, he's not totally wrong. He, Graham Harman, is also very anti-dynamic for him. The way things are in themselves uh, has a priority over how they develop and so on, over the dynamic of interrelation. Now, as I mentioned it here, often, quite often, he's not, again, not a complete idiot, Harman, he draws wonderful uh, uh, conclusions from this. For example, he has, I just would put, I think I already used this example here, a different accent. For example, in his, uh, when he quotes some popular report where they claim that the 60s, 60s in the sense of sex revolution, really happened in the 70s. Like that all the criteria or the usual features that we identify as those of the 60s, again, rock music, acid rock, drugs, sex revolution, really exploded in the 70s. I get that. 
I talked with him when I the last time visited him in LA, and my only point was that it's also another political dynamic at work here. That uh, yes, it's true. But at the same time, this move from the 60s to the 70s was gentrification, inclusion into dominant ideology. Because what happened in the 70s is that the energy of the 60s, or the energy, I hate this term, whatever the movement, was totally cleansed of its political edge and turned into this, you know, playboy, sexual revolution, music, drugs, and so on, and so on. So precisely... The 70s was the 60s as they existed in the 70s, were already the politically heavily censored. And then I propose, maybe I mention it here, another example. He agreed with it. Uh, Renaissance. It's typical how we identify Renaissance with that with that uh, all the duchies or whatever the you know uh, late 40, uh, 15th 16th century can I, can I come back? yes please um, you're talking about the 1960s um, have you seen Days of Hope by Ken Loach that was made in the 1960s was it made already then Yes. Oh my God. My, I love Loach, but I didn't know he's I, so I, old. I love Loach, and, and he says, and I agree with him, it doesn't fit yeah. what you've just been saying, that, that he was in the 1960s given agency to, 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 to present some, you know, pseudo authentic working class realism. And, uh, you know, he laments the fact that what we've completely lost is there's no opportunity to make that kind of filmmaking at the moment. and uh, what we really need is an authentic representation of elite, elite, the elite class, you know, looking at them more objectively. Why is it that, that they, they always escape? But, but I, I, I just resist, I'm resisting your kind of slightly negative, kind of almost cynical evaluation of the 60s, which, which, is, which is implicit in your kind of dis dismissal of animism, because... I'm sorry, I think there were some very good things started to be thought about in, in the 60s. And what do you mean by now? Deep ecology or what? We should be yeah, more precise I think, here. I think we're li linking up with them now that some notion of uh, non-human experience is, is important. And the limits of Cartes Cartesianism, and the mm. limits that it wasn't just some teleological breakthrough mm. in, in kind of uh, human intellectual development. It was actually... Um, a regression vis-a-vis -vis nature. It was, and, and I, know, I know you disagree with this, Savoy. But, but the, you know, you say we should be more alienated. But yeah. I'm sorry, I think that's that's where we started to go wrong. And I think we, and, and a lot of radical activists are saying quite rightly at the moment that we really started to go wrong in, in just, you know, at the start of industrialization, if not the agricultural revolution, and that all needs rethinking vis-a-vis -vis environmental agency and the agency of non-human uh, life. Uh, this, okay, we obviously cannot go into this debate because I would really like to pursue it because I see where you are aiming, but you know what's my problem? First, I don't want to, you are for me, with all the irony, which is not directed at you, but more at myself, you are too, too much into Evo Morales now for me. You know, he made that famous letter to, to a couple of years ago, Evo Morales, claiming capitalism killed Mother Nature, blah, blah, blah. My God, first, are you aware how many ecological mega-catastrophes 
were done already by human agency in pre-modern times. Almost more. Look, when I, I love the country, I visited, how do you pronounce it here, Iceland or Island? The city place whose capital is Reykjavik. Iceland. Iceland, okay. I love the country. Uh, but uh, you know that before Norwegians moved there, this was full of forests. And I, this may amuse you, this would be my counterpoint. Recently, in the same bookstore, Southampton Road, which is down, now closing down, I bought also for one ninety nine. A book by somebody called Hort Norwood, I don't know, Beyond Sorrow, something like this, a depiction of ecological struggles now in the last decade in Scotland, claiming how those who are against now repopulation of Scotland and want to keep it pristine and so on, don't see that this, all these glens or whatever which are inhabited, non-inhabited, this is part of an eco-social, this is not the original Scotland. The original Scotland in 12th, 13th century was full of forests, was much more full of people and so on and so on. So all those ecologists who claim let's keep those pristine glens wild nature. This is an, not an original white nature. This is devastated by the effects of early capitalism and so on and so on. In, and he provides the guy in this book a uh, uh, devastating for me critique of all those with Walter Scott, Robert Burns, romanticization of nature, which projects an authenticity into what was effectively an effect of an, the effect of an extremely brutal social uh, devastation, disintegration, and so on and so on. So his point is that uh, quite often deep ecologists uh, can be, are, which is why he tries to explain why he claims. It just sounds nice as a theory to me. I don't guarantee that it's true. He claims that uh, he claims that uh, quite often, that's why these ecologists who want to are, get in big, the true conflict is between very benevolent ecologists and local people. I mean, we should idealize neither of them. Quite often, ecologists who pretend to speak for close relationship to Earth can be quite alienated from authentic local... When, when you say local people, are you talking about indigenous people, aboriginal people? No, okay, uh, here you can catch me. I'm not sure which would be the politically correct term. By local people, I simply mean people who live there and are not recent immigrants. My very limited knowledge of indigenous people and their philosophies are that they're very aware of the myth of human supremacy, whereas the West is not. Oh, sorry, the myth of what supremacy? Of, of human supremacy. The myth of human supremacy. You mean that... Original aborigines are well aware that we humans do not have supremacy. And I hear, I again, we are entering dangerous topic. <laughs> because what I am afraid is that precisely this apparently non-anthropocentric views, secretly, in a way, I always suspect them that in a more refined way, they nonetheless privilege humans and so on. It's a much more, it's very difficult to be really non-anthropocentric and so on.
It's not just, you know, I feel I have the same spirit with a mountain and so on, whatever, whatever. I think it's very difficult to really, to really break out of. I'm sorry we can't go on, but I agree with you. I just, no, no, I just want to complicate things and so on. You know, I don't believe here, I agree with you that those, one of the, I hope we agree here, complete idiots are those techno-ecologists who think we just apply science, blah, 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 the problem, problems will disappear and so on and so on. But uh, at the same time, I'm sorry, uh, let's uh, get your strike back and then Very we conclude. Yeah. Do a quickie, you know yeah. what I want to say. Yeah. 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 Which on the one side uh, is quite Eurocentric, but on the other side is Atlantic. Uh, and that is the climate model and the major span, two dimensional, three dimensional, are definitely Eurocentric. But they gave reason for a huge body of theory, Barnum's theory, the Wiener Circle. Yeah. Uh, which all emanated and included the kind of criticism which you, as a young mm. have of Engels in an inverse way. On the one side from Vienna and on the other side uh, from the Negroponte yeah, yeah. uh, object-oriented developments yeah. which are Harvard-oriented and are completely not public. So what the MIT in its development strategy did exactly with this development yeah. is you cannot read anywhere. You can go into the MIT uh, databases yeah. and see what they have come out uh, in terms of uh, uh, development. But there is much, much more which is in, in, uh, absolutely uh, 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 crystallized by Negro Ponte himself, who was, uh, everybody thought, a designer. Well, yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah. But on the other side, he was an absolutely uh, security uh, deep state man who would not tell anything what he actually was uh, told to do. So, uh, you mentioned that you are at it and they are going to publish. Just make sure that you don't tap into that without looking at my Bernardo. He's the only one who can give information. I don't know whether he still uh, is alive. <coughs> he was a archetype when he was young of communist, but then uh, a, a hugely influential designer with Olivetti, he ran the Ulm-Hochschule. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll try it. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's... Uh, okay, thank okay. you. Thanks we very much.